good evening and uh, welcome to you all and welcome to the first of this year's uh, Ralph Miliband uh, lectures. Um, of course, the name Ralph Miliband is even better known than it was uh, 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 before the brothers slogged it out for the leadership of the Labour Party. But for us, it's a series of public lectures and events which celebrates the contribution that Ralph made to social and political thinking. But the bequest actually that was left to honour him is not so much a bequest to honour his politics and not those of his sons, but the style of his teaching, the rigorous nature of the engagement he had with students and others in, in public life. And it is in that, that particular critical open dialogue spirit that we have these series of lectures. This is the first event of some 20 this year. The series as a whole will be focused on the rebalancing of world power and the future of multilateralism. And this series as a whole starts in uh, a short time and everything is on the events calendar for you to, to see. But this is a special Ralph Miliband event to mark the publication of this special book, Crisis and Recovery, Ethics, Economic and Justice, edited by Larry Elliott and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Canterbury, Rowan Williams. The theme, as you can see here, is a pretty big one, Capitalism, Can It Ever Be Moral? And to discuss this issue and to hope to debate it, we have, of course, the editor of the book himself, Larry Elliott, who I'll say something about in a moment, and John Crullis, MP, and Professor Chandran Kukathis. Um, the issue is, of course, as I said, a fundamental one. Is it possible or even desirable to reform capitalism so that it behaves better, so that it conforms to defensible moral standards, so it embeds, as it were, an ethical core in its structure and modus operandi? And I always think that at least two sets of issues here, they're agency issues and structural issues. They're issues about how individuals behave in a capitalist system, and they're issues about how if even individuals behave ethically, can they do so in the long run in a system that rewards certain kinds of uh, profitability and certain kinds of economies like the UK, these tend to, be, tend to be certain kinds of profitability recognized by the financial sector. And of course, I don't need to remind you of the power of these issues in general now after the global financial crisis and the extent to which the costs have been borne by us, the collectivity, the taxpayer. But that's enough of me and now to our speakers. Uh, Larry Elliott, uh, uh, graduate of Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, and has been working at The Guardian since 1988, is that right? Quite a long stint, and he is now, of course, its economics editor. He's been a prolific journalist uh, and author of many books, including The Age of Insecurity, 1998, Fantasy Island in 2007, and The Gods That Failed in 2008. John Crellis was born in Helston. He is a member of Parliament for Dagenham and Raynham, having first been elected in 2001. He received an MA from Warwick University as well as a PhD in philosophy. He is a long committed member, standing member of the Labour Party and has written many pamphlets and articles around Labour Party issues, including a most recent one, Fit for Purpose, a programme for Labour Party renewal, issues which are very contemporary. <laughs> Finally, I want to uh, welcome one of our own, as it were, someone from the LSE, Professor Chandran Kukathas, who is Professor of Political Theory here at the London School of Economics. He's taught in many places, I won't mention them all, the Royal Military College, Canberra, Oxford, the National, Australian National University, and the University of Utah, among them. 
and he has written a number of well-known books, The Liberal Archipelago, A Theory of Diversity and Freedom, 2003, Rawls, A Theory of Justice and Its Critics, with Philip Petit, 1990, and Hayek, Modern Liberalism. Um, Larry Elliott will speak first for about some 20 minutes or so, followed by our uh, respondents. If at the end I think there's something they need to address amongst each other, I might ask them that first. But then, of course, the floor will, will be yours, and I will take questions in clusters of four or five. So please join with me now, giving our speakers a very warm welcome. I forgot to say one thing. The book is outside and will still be outside to purchase when we finish. Well, that deprived me of my first line. Uh, um, well, it's a great honour, obviously, to, to, to give the, uh, the first of the Ralph Miliband lectures. I'm not quite sure what Ralph would have been uh, happier about, one of his sons being leader of the Labour Party or the uh, crisis of capitalism, which he foresaw so often, but uh, in vain for so much of his life, uh, actually coming to pass. I'm sure he'd have been very pleased about both events. I, I thought I'd just start by telling you a bit about how the book came to be, really, because um, and I'm not, uh, I wouldn't call myself a sort of card-carrying member of the Church of England or, uh, in fact, any of any faith, uh, but what happened was that uh, back in March 2009, we envisaged it right at the depth of the economic crisis that followed the, the banking collapse. This was a period where and any of you who are here for Paul Krugman's, Paul Krugman's lectures last year would remember that the first six months after the banking crisis saw this incredible plummeting in global industrial production and a contraction in global trade. There was a real sense that the Great Depression Mark II was upon us. And so uh, Rowan Williams called together a number of people from various walks of life to discuss the crisis. And there was a a pretty uh, ecumenical grouping. There was you know, Stephen Green, uh, now uh, Trade Minister, then head of HSBC. There was Adam Lent from the TUC. There was Philip Blond, who's, uh, you know, his nickname is the Red Tory, the person who's uh, supposed to be putting the, the socialism into, into David Cameron's uh, view of life. Uh, it, was a, it was a really a wide collection of people to discuss where it had all gone wrong. Um, there was a sense somehow that uh, the, the, the period between the summer of 2007 when the crisis broke and the 18 months later in the spring of 2009 that something pretty fundamental had gone wrong with the global economy and that went really just not just uh, it wasn't just a superstructure problem it went right to the root of the system itself that there was some some something wrong with the, with the system of values that caused the crisis and that it needed some fundamental reform so that was the that was the theme of the of the meeting can capitalism ever be reformed uh, to make it better and to reform it and i suppose i was there because i'd been banging on like this for uh, the previous virtually the whole 22 years i've been in the guardian and the people at the guardian saw me walking around with a very big smile on my face and said those of a cynical nature said a stop clock is right twice a day so you've eventually got your got your wish but I mean I think there was more to it that for me I mean I, there were a number of reasons why I had been banging on relentlessly about how we were going to have this crisis and the first one was I, I'm suspicious of fundamentalism in all, it, in all its forms that goes for religious fundamentalism but market fundamentalism the, the belief in the in the absolute sort of power and, and goodness and, and, and efficacy of the market 
uh, I think had mirrored that religious fundamentalism and was just as dangerous. And I think that what had happened uh, in some sort of schools of academia was that there was a school of thought which said markets work, markets work perfectly, and the best thing that you can do is get out of the way and let them do that. And anybody who didn't think that tended to be pushed into the shadows. So the great economic journals were dominated by people of a like mind. And essentially the whole economics profession was dominated by this, what I call market fundamentalism. Um, and Paul Krugman mentioned this, I think, when he gave his lectures last year, that essentially anybody of a dissenting <coughs> voice went unheard in that period. Um, there was a sort of sense that it had been cracked, that sort of the period from 1975 to the middle, middle of this middle of the past decade there had been a period where there had been a fixed view of the world that uh, government was the problem that the best thing you could do was cut taxes uh, free up uh, free up markets clamp down on trade unions give capital uh, absolute full access to, to wherever it wanted to go and that you would get the best of all possible worlds from doing so and that would lead to uh, at least the best, the best possible outcomes. Well, I mean, that, 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 that's, that seemed to be the theory, but it didn't seem to be working that well in practice. I mean, that, that was the second, the second reason why I was kind of quite keen on talking to Rowan and his merry band of men and women was that I looked at what had happened uh, in the past, and, and it seemed to me that if, if those uh, who talked about uh, real business cycles and efficient market hypothesis and rational expectations were right, why did things seem to be going so wrong so often in so many places? And if you look at what happened to the global economy from about the sort of early 1990s, what you saw was a gradual burrowing of crises from the periphery of the global economy towards its core. So. The first signs of trouble happened in faraway places of which we knew at the time very little. So you saw a crisis in Mexico in the mid-1990s, followed by crises in Southeast Asia, in Thailand, and in Indonesia, South Korea, then Russia, Argentina. And gradually, you know, these crises were happening with rather too much regularity for those people who said that these things could only happen once in every 10,000 years or a million years according to their beautiful mathematical models of how the economy was going to work. The real economy seemed to be working in a completely different way from the global economy and what seemed to be happening was that the problems seemed to be getting ever closer to the centre of the, of the global economy just as it happened between 1890 and 1929 when exactly the same thing happened, that the first signs of trouble happened in countries like Argentina and gradually the crisis pushed its way ever closer to the core. And the second half of the sort of historical perspective was that capitalism seemed to work, I mean the history of capitalism, it seemed to be that capitalism did work better when it was regulated, when there were some moral constraints put on it, when there were um, some, sand, some sand thrown in the wheel, and that was the sort of theme of quite a lot of the people who you know, contributed to the book. That was certainly the theme of um, Philip Blond's essay, um, talking about the need to, to, to regulate the markets from a, from, a, from, a, from a conservative perspective. I mean, this is a sort of whole tradition of restraint, knowing your limits, 
Zach Goldsmith, now Tory MP for Richmond, came at it from an environmental perspective. He said his, his argument was that we just cannot carry on uh, treating, as, treating the world as though we've got three planets when we've actually got one, that actually there needs to be some sense of um, environmental restraint. And, and Rowan Williams came from the perspective that economics, yes, it's important, but it's only really part of, uh, of our entire life, that uh, while economics is a very key part of our existence, you can't just have a, uh, an economic existence and make that totally separate from, uh, from, a, from some sort of moral, uh, from moral perspective uh, or ethical perspective. So that was really where, where, where all those contributors were coming from. I think Stephen Green, had he contributed, didn't in the end, but it was coming from very much the same sort of, same sort of perspective. Um, and you know, my perspective was that the, the, the golden age, if there, if there ever was a golden age of capitalism, really came between 1950 and 19, early 1970s when growth rates were higher than they have been since productivity increases were greater than they have been since, unemployment was lower than it has been since, and the spoils of growth were shared much more evenly both within countries and across the, and across the global economy. And essentially, I mean, this is a point that um, Pollyanni made in, in The Great Transformation, really, that you know, the great lesson of the 19th century was that the free market left to its own devices was incredibly destabilising. Uh, and very dangerous, and you had a whole series of both political and social reforms which attempted to put some curbs, some restraints on that market. So essentially the whole period from 1850 to 1950 was a period of uh, control, of progressive interference in the market, be that progressive income tax or uh, old age pensions or welfare states or free state education growth of trade unions, growth of political parties uh, that represented the working class. All these things actually took the edge off the, off, off the, off the market and by, by 1950 it had a completely different sort of capitalism to the one you'd had in 1850 and as a result, in my view, the system worked much better. So a, lot of the, a lot of the problems that had been evident in 1929-32 were actually uh, eradicated by 1950 and you had a much a uh, much more humane and much more workable capitalist system. The third thing that, um, that interested me really about Rowan's um, idea was it sort of raised questions about what is, what is progress. Uh, and there are a number of, number of strands. I mean, obviously material progress is important and we're all very much richer now than we were 20 years ago, or incredibly much richer than we were 250 years ago, and uh, I, I'm not one of those people who says that uh, it would be great if we could go back to some you know, pre-lapsarian time when we all lived in, uh, uh, lived in uh, a pre-industrial age. I think that you know, the, the modern age has actually led to incredible increases in standards of living. Um, life expectancy is longer. We live much longer, better lives than we did 250 years ago. But material progress is not enough uh, in itself. Uh, on its uh, on it, very on its own terms, um, how does material progress square with resource depletion? With the fact that we are seemingly running out of the basics of life, of of oil perhaps of water and of land. That's the first point, well, pretty obvious one, really. The second thing is, can you really have, can you really have a proper progress 
when the spoils are so unevenly shared. Uh, and this is a point that um, Lester Thoreau made in, in one of his books, which was that it's quite feasible to have vast inequalities of wealth, um, but that doesn't really coexist. That only really coexists with authoritarian uh, systems. It doesn't really equate with democracies. That in a democracy, you have to inject some form of equity into the system, or it won't survive for very long. The third, the third thing that interests me was this. There is, there does seem to be, at the moment, a great deal of technical progress. I mean, people talk about this being the third great industrial revolution. So we're going to have biotechnology, we're going to have digital technology, robotics are going to be to the first half of this century what what the sort of steam steam power and coal were to the end of the uh, 18th century and what the radio and the, the aeroplane and the motor car were to the first half of the 20th century. Uh, but it seems interesting, I think, that, you know, or it's certainly a question worth asking, where is the cultural expression of that technical change? And if there is no cultural expression, does that mean that uh, the technical prose in itself is quite barren? So, you know, the end of the 18th century, you saw there's a great era of romanticism. It's the time of Beethoven, Mozart, Wordsworth. In the 20th century, the great era of modernism in art, you know, Joyce, Proust, Picasso. Where is that? Where is that, where is that resonance of, of, of the technical progress? So, the, so where that led me was, are we actually on the cusp of going backwards? I mean, Dare Turner has talked about socially useless banking. We have vast inequities in our society. We've seen and seemingly not, not, seem, seem to not to care that much about them. I mean, we had Labour politicians talking about being totally relaxed about people becoming filthy rich. But more importantly, I think we've got a sort of dysfunctional global political system that seems incapable of dealing with the problems that actually led to the crisis. Now, if you look at the, look at the crisis, it's not just a crisis of banking. It's a crisis of global imbalances, of, of, of a world order where you have... Uh, uh, you have uh, one half of the world running huge trade surpluses, one half of the world uh, running big trade deficits, and the money that was rolling around the world as a result of that, looking for a home, search for yield as it was known, found its way into Western economies through their very sophisticated banking systems and actually fueled the asset price booms that I think probably laid at the very heart of the crisis. And a lot of people uh, did some very, very bad and stupid things but essentially, the, 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 the global imbalances that lay behind this problem remain untouched. So we have a dysfunctional global polity that can't even deal with the things that people really fundamentally agree on. So we've had a trade round that's been trundling on in Doha since the autumn of 2001, which is still not anywhere near being concluded and yet everybody, every policymaker everywhere, you talk to anybody at the IMF or the World Bank or the Bank of England or the Fed, you know, you go to the G20, you go to any meeting and you'll find people say we must complete the Doha round, yet the Doha round remains incompleted. That seems to me to be a very, very worrying sign because if you can't even deal with problems that seem relatively simple, how are we going to deal with these much more intractable, intractable problems such as how do we deal with the global imbalances? How do we deal with, with, with the climate change issue? And I think those, those are really very big, very big issues. And, and uh, 
where we stand, I think, is that we have had the financial crisis and we've had the first part of the economic crisis, but it's quite conceivable to see the economic crisis going on. There are lots of people, from Adam Posen to Ben Bernanke, who are worried about the fact that we seem to be stuck in a very low, uh, very low growth equilibrium, that we're not really coming out of the, of the recession, but looming, looming large as an energy crisis, an environmental crisis, and on top of that, I would say, a moral crisis and a crisis of value. So where does that leave us? Well, there's a, there's a very interesting um, American, uh, I think it's a historian called Stephen Cobrin, who's at the Wharton School, I think at the University of Pennsylvania, who compares the um, compares globalization to the, um, to, the medie to the medieval church. And he says this, that you know, generally globalization is a system where you have a very strong central authority, beneath that a system of very weak, warring uh, princedoms. That's the, that, was the that was the medieval um, way of doing things. So you had the Vatican, Roman Catholic Church, Catholic ideology, system of very weak, uh, weak states. And that seemed, to me to, that seemed to me to have very, very interesting parallels with where we are today. So, you know, for the Catholic creed, read the Washington Consensus. For the, you know, for someone who, um, for the sort of lavish lifestyle of the Medici popes, read the people on their £10 million bonuses and they're drinking their £40,000 cocktails. For excommunication, read the um, downgrade from the Standard and Poor's or Moody's. For the for the rap on the knuckles from the papal legate, read the IMF hit squad that comes in with their briefcase full of uh, public spending cuts. And it does seem to me that where we, where we got to by 2007 was something that was quite similar to the Catholic China. I know John is uh, of that creed, so maybe oh, this is something that he can respond to. But we had got to a situation by 2007, I think, rather like the Catholic Church in 1500, where it was riddled with corruption and hypocrisy and absolutely right for Martin Luther to come along. Um, so that, I think, was why we all got together. We all wanted to play at being Martin Luther nailing our thesis to the door. Um, and I'll finish, I'll, finish, uh, no, I'll finish my 20 minutes by saying this, that we are, I think, at quite, a, quite an interesting, quite a critical point in this crisis. Um, and we have to ask ourselves, what is going to happen if we go back to business as usual, which seems to be quite a plausible outcome here. Um, you know, back, in the, back in the autumn of 2008 and in the early part of 2009, it was absolutely joyous to be a social democrat because we really did think that our moment had come. You know, this was, you know, we'd been waiting for 30 years for our sort of, uh, for, the, for the system that we'd thought was so problematical to face the same sort of crisis that the Keynesian model that we'd grown up in had, had, had run into in the mid-1970s. And you know, though not many of you are old enough to remember, some of you are, I suppose, but at that time there was a sort of fully-fledged free market expose of the system ready and there were off-the-peg policy remedies for the new right governments to take on board and to run with, uh, which they did with great vigour uh, in the 1980s. And for those of us of a social democratic bent, we thought, this is our moment. You know, we can 
inject morality back into capitalism, we can actually we can make capitalism work for more people, we can make it work more efficiently, more effectively, uh, and we can, we, we can put the constraints back on the system that will make it work. Um, but what's really happened in that period has been quite disappointing, I think, um, partly because I think of failures of the, of, of the left polity, that uh, part of the left simply hadn't done any really serious thinking for a long, long time, and therefore were unable to meet the intellectual challenge, um, partly because the bankers uh, and the supporters of the system are very well dug in and knew what to do in those circumstances, which was to sort of bend with the wind for a while uh, and then hope that nothing happened, uh, and they've been proved reasonably correct there. Uh, and essentially what we've seen is not a you know, renaissance of social democracy, but a move back to some of the tenets of the of the traditional conservative right. So what started, I think, remains really a, a crisis of the private sector, has turned into a crisis of the public sector, at least in the minds of the public. Um, and that, I think, has blunted the appetite for reform uh, with pretty dangerous, potentially very dangerous circumstances. So where do I see things going? Well, I think, you know, it's quite tempting, I think, to, to imagine that 2007, massive crisis, huge shock to the global economy, big policy response, capitalism is a very strong system, it's all over. I, I really don't see it in that way. I think that you know, we have, this could well be the start of a very long period of adjustment, which does tend to be the, the way that the world works after big shocks. If you think about you know, the period 1914 to 1945, when the, when, the old, when the first global system broke up, people thought that would be repaired very quickly, that country, after the war countries would go back on the gold standard. In fact, what we had was a 30-year period which involved two world wars, one Great Depression, a drift to totalitarianism in all its dreadful forms. In the mid-1970s, the, the Great Inflation led to a very, very long period of adjustment, probably took 20 years for that to work its way through the system. So to anybody who thinks that this is going to be uh, a flash in the pan or a very quick, uh, there's a very quick fix this, I, 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 would, I, I would beg to differ. I think that you know, we've had, and if you look at, look at the history of the last six or 70 years, we had a Great Depression, and then we had what's known as the Great Compression after the, after the Second World War, where incomes, incomes are squeezed, very strong growth. We had the Great Inflation. We had what you know, Mervyn King and others have called the Great Moderation uh, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, to me, that was actually quite a mirage. That was that was a, that was a that was a prosperity built around a false prospectus that everybody could get rich very quickly by uh, borrowing more money and seeing their houses go up in value. And I think what we're looking at now <coughs> is something I call uh, the Great Reckoning, and I think that is going to be what we're going to look forward to over the next 10 years. Thank you very much. Right, um, I'm not here for, to defend Catholic social teaching, but I will, um, I will say a few words about that, actually, um, later. Um, I want to talk about the book and actually come on the back of what Larry was saying at the end in terms of a, uh, as almost a generic crisis of social democracy 
panning across Western market economies. You look at uh, the Labour vote at the last election was 29 points. Uh, SPD in West Germany was, uh, sorry, Germany was 23%. Just last week in Sweden, I think the Social Democrats got 30%. Um, so what should have been an embryonic crisis of capitalism, if you want, turns into a crisis of social democracy. And that throws up some really interesting questions to me in terms of... Um, reconfiguring a centre-left political project. Um, so that's why I want to sort of touch on, because I'm really interested in the book, which is available outside, I'll give it another plug, because it is an act of philosophical synthesis in that, I think Rowan Williams says at the beginning, it brings economics back to the humanities, which is a very interesting, I think, departure point. Um, and I know it's very difficult following Larry and talking about economics, so I'll talk about some of the more ethical issues that are brought to bear in this contribution um, and some of the sentiment that I think lie behind it and some of the philosophical questions. The contributions are all very varied um, and apart from Larry and what he's just said, what is interesting to me is that they all carry a sort of religious sentiment within them and I think that's quite an interesting thing to worth to explore because it reminded me just reading through it again this afternoon, I was at the Hay book festival this year and the standout thing that I've heard all year was a lecture by Karen Armstrong the historian of religions and uh, she was giving a talk and um, she was uh, asked what religion is about boil it down and she um, returned to um, some contributions by a guy called Hayan Maccabee now I'm Irish Catholic working class and this guy's Jewish so I don't know that much about the Jewish faith but she was reciting some of his talks and she quoted him in terms of reference to Hillel's golden rule and this basic proposes that people ask a uh, eminent theologian that they will convert to their religion if they stand on one foot and recite in the time that you have what is the essence of religious teaching and the theorem goes something like this do, do not do unto others as you would have not them do unto you that is the Torah, the rest is commentary. And I think that's quite an interesting thing, because Armstrong then goes on to explain how this is the kernel of all religious thinking, a sense of solidarity, and that individuals are social beings. They are located in social relationships with other people. And there's a sense of obligation to care for one another. There's a sense of duty and solidarity that goes along with it. And I think that's quite an interesting departure point, because that comes out of what Rowan Williams says in this book. Why I think that's interesting is because of what Larry said, We've been dominated by a form of philosophical thinking that is totally at odds with that notion of embedded social relationships. It's about a very much an atomised view of human activity. Um, Larry talked about revolutions in the 19th century. I mean, to me, the standout revolution that's important in terms of what this book seeks to challenge is a uh, revolution in the 1870s in terms of neoclassical economic theory that... Um, removes value from being embedded in social relationships or labour itself and uh, is the subjective preferences of individual people which legitimise people's position in society because that's their rational trade-off because of their subjective preferences between work and leisure. And the interesting thing to me is what this book seeks to challenge is that fundamental proposition that has dominated our, our economic thinking for literally over 100 years, 130 years. Um, why is that important? Because I think philosophically you can chart two different fundamental propositions which have an isolated individual philosophically and politically and one embedded in social relationships with consequential obligations. You can treat it back to Thomas Hobbes where selfishness is a guiding virtue 
in and of itself, Ayn Rand, whatever. Um, and I always return to some of the essays that Foucault wrote before his death on neoliberalism, where he talked about how this hollowed-out notion of what the individual is becomes naturalised, it becomes biopolitical. Um, and I think that's what the book tries to challenge, actually, in terms of its conception of humanity and obligation and duty. Um, why is that important? Well, it's important in terms of the political reckoning around social democracy in this country. Um, the most interesting thing that I always use as a reference point is Philip Gould, you know, the pollster for Tony Blair's pollster. He wrote a book called The Unfinished Revolution. And in that book, he said as the fundamental proposition in terms of his, lo his lodestar as regards New Labour was that his parents wanted to do what was right, not what was aspirational in his mind. So therefore, he criticised that because he believed there was a separation between doing what was right and what you aspired to. And it was a very stripped down, desiccated notion of human material gain, which lies at the which is the cornerstone of neoclassical economics and the movement rightwards which sees the state as benign, which um, challenges the role of the state in civil society and comes down to the consequences of the deregulated free market capitalism which Larry has identified over many years and lies behind the crisis that we are all undergoing now. Now why is that important? Well it's been the cornerstone, this notion of aspiration that has lied behind New Labour. If you look at, it's very interesting, if you look at the speeches of Tony Blair circa 1994-95 and compare and contrast them to the final one he gave as Labour Party leader in 2005, you see a much warmer, generous language at the start, which focuses on, I am my brother's keeper, um, John McMurray, some broader philosophical questions of obligation and duty to others. By 2005, it's almost a dystopian notion of winner-takes-all, where globalisation, you either sink or swim. Um, and I think that emptying out of the language and the nature of New Labour tells a real story about how it lost its connection and actually became part of the problem in terms of buying into the sort of Greenspan, Gordon Brown worldview in terms of free market deregulated economics, which lies behind the nature of the crisis. The very interesting thing for me is what's happening around social democracy is, well, I was in Manchester last week listening to Ed Miliband, the, leader, the new leader of the Labour Party, and in his... Um, speech to accept the leadership of the Labour Party, he started talking about the notion of the good society, which actually is at odds with that dystopian model that Blair, New Labour, ended up with, and it's almost a return to um, questions of the political sphere being um, the, policy, the, the place where politics is about allowing people to realise their potentials across a number of different virtues rather than just material gain. And what underscores it is a much deeper philosophy, which I think could possibly open up a different type of politics across social democracy, which I think is very interesting in terms of its policy consequences, in terms of the possibilities of labour or social democracy developing a notion of a good society which rebuilds a notion of a covenant with the people in terms of getting them housed, getting them work, getting good public services, um, keeping the environment sustainable. The point is, I think we could be at a turning point in terms of what underscores social democracy with reference to how you conceive of the individual in society. And I think that is really interesting because this exercise of synthesis in this book, I think, is one of the first attempts to flesh that out with recourse to the economists but also to 
religious contributors as well as philosophers. And that exercise of synthesis seems to me to be a very interesting space now that the centre-left could develop around. Put it another way, this book posits that um, liberal free market capitalism is is and of itself not sustainable in that the, the notion, the Greenspan model, that there were self-correcting elements within capitalism that could lock in growth indefinitely was wrong. Now, empirically, that was untested for 15 years where you had 60 quarters of growth. And then the music stops. Lehman Brothers go for Chapter 11. When's that? Mid-2007. And these are the first attempts to grapple with some of the consequences of that failure. Um, the second proposition, I think, comes out of the book is alongside that it's prone to failure, is that we have to deal with the so social wreckage that goes along with it. Patterns of well-being, mental health, uh, loneliness, and all of those other social uh, characteristics which have been away from the political sphere for so long because of this notion of an atomized notion of um, aspiration and the accruement of ever more flatter, wider screen TVs. So I think it is a, a, an interesting sort of philosophical um, synthesis. Now, why do I think it's important? Well, I think that notion of economics, a synthesis with philosophy and theology, and some of uh, the religious contributors in the country, allows for the possibilities almost of a virtue politics here. Now, why is that important? Well, I think the social democratic sphere has to be reclaimed, because I have a fear of a different type of populist politics coming down the road in the context of dramatic cuts over the next couple of years. And I'll give you one allegory for what might be coming. I was going to watch a film the other day with my wife, and we were walking down the road, and she pointed out to a child in front of me, and uh, I couldn't work out what she was meaning. She said, look, look at this child. Um, and I still couldn't get it. And um, she said, look at this T-shirt. And walking down the road was this big African guy with his child, and the child had a t-shirt and on its back it just said Pastor Jones right. and I didn't understand what that, what that meant um, but she explained to me it's obviously at the height of this debate around a, a mosque in Manhattan and um, I thought it was quite interesting that coming out of a, a service people were prepared to wear these Pastor Jones t-shirts in London in 2010 and what was that about and the more you inquire you can, you can identify linked into a phenomena like the English Defence League on the streets. Um, literally a street fighting machine in this country that's been developing. As the BNP, which is older, collapses, you see quite a populist, fascistic street army developing alongside links into um, more intellectual critiques of Islam and certain evangelical movements. And there is an embryonic Tea Party that could be moving in this country over the next couple of years in the context of economic and social rupture and I think it's incumbent for social democracy to reclaim um, well Raymond Williams once said to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing and that dystopian model that's underpinned new labour or neoliberal labour if you want is at an end and it has to be reforged into something that is social democratic and you can only do that by reclaiming a politics of virtue based around contesting this emptied-out, desiccated notion of human acquisition. Thanks very much.
Well, I'm, uh, I'm very pleased to, to, to be here to be asked to comment on, on this book, which I am very pleased to have had a chance to read, and I, I recommend that you, that you buy it, um, because I've met the, 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 the publishers, and they seem to be very nice, and <laughs> I wish them well. Um, but I have to be honest and say I, I don't share the outlook of most of the people in, in the book, although it is a book made up of uh, a, a range of different perspectives. I, I don't share that outlook, um, and I, I certainly don't share the outlook of the... Uh, people on the stage um, who have been speaking to you so far. Um, I don't agree with the, the critiques that, that's been offered of either the, uh, the financial crisis or of capitalism, which I think has been, to my mind, too much of a caricature. It has not really recognized the diversity that there is in the perspective that um, has been criticized. And I don't think the book really gives us um, really a, a very deep critique of financial capitalism. And I think, in fact, to my mind, you can find a much more powerful and uh, deep critique of this from many free market liberals who have been at odds with one another for the last 50 years, perhaps at least going back to the, to the Bretton Woods Agreement. So and I have my reservations um, about the book. But on the other hand, I do think you should read it. I just don't think you should read only this book. But let me come to the, the topic of this, um, uh, of this seminar, which is actually not just the book, but the question that we were asked to consider. Can capitalism be moral? Or capitalism, can it ever be moral? Now, the title is, if nothing else, a little tendentious. When I saw this title as someone who was obviously picked because he was going to defend capitalism, I thought of the question, very famous in journalism, have you stopped beating your wife? Uh, and of course, once the question's been put, it's very difficult to say, look, my wife's just fine. You know? Even if you don't deny it, anything you say will be read as meaning uh, the gentleman doth protest too much. You know? So um, I was really asked here to protest, uh, but I'm just not going to, because if I do, well, then I'll be, I'll be hanged. So. Um, I'm going to try to answer the question, can capitalism ever be moral? And in good academic fashion, um, I have to tell you, before you can answer this question, you have to ask, what is capitalism? Now, I'm not going to go through Econ 101 or even uh, Political Economy 101, but I'm going to try to give you some kind of answer to this question. So what is capitalism in 30 seconds or fewer? Okay. Well, firstly, it's an economic system. Okay, so you've got to contrast capitalism with other economic systems if you want to consider what it is. So you might contrast it with socialism or with feudalism, but you wouldn't contrast it with other ideologies, say like conservatism, um, or in another sense, socialism, which is not only an economic system but also a political ideology. Now, at the core of capitalism, at least I'm going to submit to you, there are at least two things. Okay? Uh, one is the importance of exchange or trade. Okay? If you want to have capitalism, you've got to have a trading um, economy, an economy in which people exchange things. Secondly, I think just as importantly, it's got to be an economy in which everyone has the right to trade. It accepts all comers. So you're not excluding some people from trading. Feudal systems, um, there are many sorts of economic systems where there's trade, but that's not enough. Okay? Everyone's got to be allowed to enter into the 
marketplace. But there are some other things that are necessary for this to become capitalism and not just any system of exchange, because after all, Aboriginal people in Australia were exchanging things for a long time, but no one would say they had capitalism. Well, I think you need a couple of other things. Firstly, you need a system in which the productivity of labor is increased by the use of technologies. And I think by technologies here, um, I mean both physical, very important, and organizational, which I think is even more important. Okay? Um, so primitive exchange does not um, give you capitalism because there's, there's no capital. Okay? Capitalism dips, deploys capital. And capital is not just lumps of stuff. Uh, I think it's systems that allow you to increase the productivity of labor. So that you need that. Something else you need okay, to understand what capitalism is. Capitalism is a system in which production serves no predetermined end. Okay? What is produced in a capitalist economy is just what people or groups of people create in order to exchange for other things that others create. Okay? There's no agent, single or collective, who determines what are the appropriate ends. Okay? So these are the things you need if you're going to have capitalism. Let me then make three observations about this. Firstly, capitalism has a brutal side to it. If there are no set ends, people will produce what they want and demand what they want. Those who produce what no one wants or wants any longer will have to change or just lose out. Okay? No matter how valuable they think their products, no matter how hard they've worked, no matter how virtuous they are, no one describes this aspect of capitalism more forcefully than Marx, and I'm sure most people here at LSE have read the, the Communist Manifesto. Okay? If whole ways of life have been built, premised on the idea that a community has something to offer, and its products are suddenly no longer wanted, that way of life will die. Okay? For example, the whaling industry collapsed in the 19th century when John D. Rockefeller started producing kerosene too cheaply uh, for whale oil to compete. We had peak oil, in fact, in the 19th century. It was just whale oil, not uh, the black stuff. Okay? Blockbusters, the video company, destroyed many small video stores, but it's now being destroyed by Apple TV, you know, video online. Capitalism feels no regret or remorse. It's like the Terminator. Okay? <laughs> it's pitiless. Milton Friedman, the liberal economist, said that under capitalism, people were free to choose. John Romer, the socialist economist, said that under capitalism, people were free to lose. Both are right. One freedom goes with the other, at least in capitalist economic systems. Second observation. Capitalism itself is indifferent to culture and exists in many different societies where the rules governing exchange may vary. Capitalism does not require one specific culture or produce one specific culture. Capitalism is possible where competition is possible. Competition can produce a great variety of cultures and destroy a great variety of cultures. Third observation, very few people like capitalism, least of all capitalists, <laughs> especially established capitalists. An inevitable part of any capitalist economy is a network of groups trying to shelter from the effects of competition. 
which is to say, from the effects of others trading. They do this by trying to stop some others trading, by trying to restrict what some others can produce, or by trying to require others to take what they produce at the price that they and not others prefer. If you want this described in a phrase, and I claim no originality for this, privatize gains and socialize losses. That's what goes on in capitalism. Now, the question is, is what we have capitalism? Well, yes it is. Almost everywhere, but, almost, but certainly in the countries of the developed West, uh, I think also in most of Asia, a lot of Africa, because we have trade, we have great labor productivity as a result of technological innovation, we have competition. But we also have what every capitalist society has, people trying to rewrite the rules of exchange to their own advantage. What varies from time to time and place to place is who is successful at rewriting the rules. And what also varies is the reasons given for changing the rules. Here are some of the reasons I think are often given for changing the rules. National security, this has become very popular in recent times. Economic growth, full employment, securing the future of our children, protecting vital industries, services, traditions, preserving our cultures, protecting our communities, increasing virtue, fairness. I'm sure you could think of many other reasons people have offered for rewriting the rules in their favor. Here are some reasons that not often heard. I make things no one wants. My business practices are outmoded. I want to live this way, growing apples on a small, unprofitable farm in France. My re-election depends on it. Our party's re-election depends on it. Obviously, I think these are some of, not all the real reasons, but some of the motivations that are also there for trying to reform the capitalist system. So, can capitalism be moral? Can it ever be moral? If one thinks of capitalism as a system built on exchange, if you like, put it in a nicer way, norms of reciprocity, then capitalism is by its nature moral to the extent that reciprocity and equality of right to ply one's trade or hawk one's wares reveal a kind of morality. But if we recognize that capitalism will always provoke people to try to change the rules of the game to suit themselves, or their favorite constituents, then I would say that capitalism will always bring with it immorality. The question is whether it will bring with it more immorality in the sense of self-serving conduct than any other economic system. You can guess what I think. So can capitalism be reformed? Now, the answer to this question, I think, depends on your standards and perhaps on your nature as an optimist or a pessimist. If the thought is that self-serving behavior could somehow and should somehow be eradicated, I think the prospects are limited. Okay. Business and conspiracy to defraud the public go together like Keynes and deficit financing. Okay. 
or like political campaigning and promises of a new page, chapter, dawn, era, or well, new anything really. If the thought is that self-serving behavior might be reduced, the prospects are better, but I would not be optimistic. Now, many people who have contributed to this book think differently. It is in many ways a book, I think, full of optimism, optimism that clear thinking, hard work, and little goodwill could produce some serious reform. I'm not so optimistic. To effect reform, you need reformers. But not just any reformers, you need the right reformers. But as we've seen, capitalism, by its very nature, creates people who want to reform it, only in their own interest. Commenting on Plato's ideal city ruled by the philosopher guardians, Juvenal famously quipped, but who will guard the guardians? Well, when it comes to capitalism, one could just as well ask, who will reform the reformers? Thank you. Well, just in case you thought there was going to be a consensus on the panel. Um, I think I am tempted as the chair, before we open up the questions, to ask Larry or John, would they like to respond to that just for a moment? Because it would be interesting to hear how you might respond to it, because it does, after all, suggest a very different kind of theoretical and political and ethical position than your own. Um, well, I, um, um, I'm not an absolutist, right? I mean, I just, I'm, I'm pretty pragmatic. I don't want to, I don't want to. Now, 30 years ago, the Labour Party was, uh, had, a, had a flank that wanted to abolish capitalism, I think it's fair to say. They wanted to, in effect, invite the Russians in and abolish the police and a whole of other different things, you know, and it didn't get very far. And uh, I'm a fairly pragmatic social democrat. So to me, this is in the inches, really, this debate about how you make the place more equal. Well, just how you struggle to give people, to quote um, my mum's favourite priest, Oscar Romero, those with, a, with, those with a voice should be the voice of the voiceless. It's a, it's a question of basic democracy, uh, basic inequalities, and trying to blur the, ages of some of the edges of some of the extremes that I seek to representatively die. Now, that might not be as you know, pure and clean, and, but I don't deal in that world. My world is very practical, trying to get people a job or a house or a, a but to, to render that um, intelligible you have to seek to land it in terms of how you understand human behavior to be and um, I think um, people aspire in their street in their neighborhood to build a better street and neighborhood and they have a sense of obligation and duty to their neighbors and my own cursory reading of economic philosophy through the ages is that there was a certain revolution in economic philosophy which uh, actually dominated the political sphere increasingly through the ages, especially after the era that Larry talked about, um, which reached its, uh, which I think you can have uh, different epochs and understand the world through different epochs. And I think you can isolate an era from about the late 70s through to probably 2008, 
um, and you can describe that and compartmentalise it as an era of neoliberalism where certain political philosophy willed out, which is um, simply aimed at to strip away some of the checks and balances, the intermediary institutions, the role of the state, which actually safeguards the people I represent. So my job is to defend that and try and make the place more equal. I'd just say, I think, two things, really. I mean, I agree that there are many varieties of capitalism. If you look at the Swedish system of capitalism, it's entirely different from the French system of capitalism. Look at the Chinese variant of capitalism, it's completely different from the, from the Italian system. I mean, I think what the, the, the critique of this book is essentially about the, the Anglo-Saxon variety of capitalism, which became, I suppose, the sort of dominant model over the last 25 or 30 years, and threatened, I think, to become something of a monoculture. I mean, it did become almost, almost like a monopoly. Uh, a monopoly form of, of, of capitalism. That's the first point, really, that in, in capitalism ended up sort of eating its own babies. Uh, and the second thing, I suppose, is that the, the crisis itself exposed the limitations of the, theore the theoretical model. I mean, I'm sure there is, there is a, there's a perfectly justifiable political response to the crisis, which is that the policymakers should have done nothing, that actually the best thing they could have done would be to assume this was just a wave of creative destruction, allow the banks to fail, and that would have been the best way to have dealt with it. You purge the system, it's an enormous catharsis, and out of the rubble of the rottenness would emerge a better world. And I think that's an entirely justifiable intellectual position, but not one that I think bears any relation to real policy making, because there's no policy making. It's not just that policymakers are looking out for their next vote or the next election. It's that they know that if the banks had been allowed to fail in that sort of very brutal way, and capitalism is brutal in that way, that it would have caused much greater misery than it already did. And I suppose the, the justification of the book is, can we actually, without, you know, like John, I'm not an anti-capitalist, I, I, you know, I, I think that we can make the system better. The question is, does the, does the crisis lend itself to a different way of doing things. And I think if we just assume that you can just carry on business as usual after a crisis of that magnitude, um, it, it, that's a pretty difficult thing to argue. And there, there are, you know, it seems to me, two, two, two ways of going. Either you go with the complete Hayekian, you know, let, let the system uh, purge itself, or you, go with a or you go with a reformist strategy, or you go to the other extreme and say that, you know, this is the final collapse of capitalism around the corner, which I don't believe. Just one thing. The, the just one the book isn't a book of the left, as far as I read it, Larry, either you being the editor. It seems no, to me there's no, no. contributions from the centre, the left and the right. So, I mean, um, it... Well. Okay. Uh, would you like a brief word before we open Sure, just, just very very briefly. Um, firstly, with respect to, to John's observations, um, and I, I recognise that neither person uh, you know, on my right here is... Uh, uh, suggesting the overthrowing of capitalism, the, the issue was was reform rather than rather than transformation or replacement. So to that extent, you know, I completely accept the idea that you know, the thing to do is to to think about you know, small changes and small reforms that might be be made. But on the other hand, the language of the book is of a um, a systemic disaster of an entire economic system. Okay? Now, if that's the um, uh, the language that 
that is being put forward, then that's the language in which I had to address the issue. So um, now, with respect to um, the, Larry's point about there being varieties of capitalism and the books being focused mainly on the Anglo-Saxon model, um, I think what's not clear to me here then is how that is a critique of capitalism. I mean, it could still be, but <coughs> why isn't it, for example, not <coughs> a critique of the state? Um, I mean, after all, in this case, what we've got um, in all of these economic systems is an intertwining of economic systems and systems of political organization. They produce their own uh, distinctive you know, characteristics, their distinctive <coughs> political economies. Well, if we're going to say this is a critique of capitalism, we've got to disentangle um, the economic bits, if you like, to explain why that is the case. And I couldn't quite see this coming out of... Uh, well, I think, uh, I can, I mean, the answer to that really is that the, <coughs> we, we didn't see this as a crisis of the state. I mean, we saw this as yeah. a crisis of too little state rather than too much. And mm -hmm. actually, we saw the problem as had the, the state being stripped out of, 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 the, of the picture over the last 30 years, regulations, the rules and regulations that were imposed mm -hmm. after the Great Depression uh, as being stripped away. And therefore, this, this to, 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 to the, to the, to the contributors was not a problem of the, of the state. It was a problem of, of the market. Mm -hmm too much market, not enough state. That was that. That's really accurate. Okay, if I could just hold you guys here just for a second and come to the audience. Um, we'll take questions in clusters of five. We'll come back to the panel, obviously. Um, questions should be short and tight, not speeches. We've had a lot of those. So we want a different kind of discourse so we can get some arguments and discussions going. Let me just see where the hands are roughly so I can get a sense of who wants to ask a question. Starting, yeah, down there. Yeah. Yeah, we need a mic over here, and then we'll come to this gentleman here, and then move back. Do you want us to identify ourselves? Um, that Eva Marie and I, global, uh, editor of Global Policy. Um, what was your name? Eva Marie and I, LSE Governance, editor of Global Policy. Um, I, I'm sort of in Chandran's side here, but that's by the way. <laughs> but, um, I, I was struck speaking to Larry Elliott and John Quaddis about the asymmetry in your analysis of capitalism and the social. And on the one hand, it seems to be everything that's wrong is capitalism. Um, and so therefore something, you know, you, you've already embedded the analysis and the critique and the uh, response to it in, in one go. But the same doesn't appear for the social, so you seem to have a much more deductive approach to the social. In other words, the social is not seen as people competing, people being um, violent, pe so, so all the nasty stuff is not seen as social, but social is somehow up there in, in an ideal world, but capitalism isn't. And those that doesn't seem analytically quite coherent or logical to me. Thank you. Yeah, gentlemen in <coughs> front, and then we'll move back and come up there in just a moment. Um, this was aimed at Chandra's really. Um, you said that um, capitalism can't be moral and it's um, competitive and brutal. Um, is com competition not in human nature? Isn't everything com competitive? So what I'd like to raise is what would you class as moral? What is morality? Okay, big set of questions there. Yeah, gentleman at the back. Yes, thank you very much. Um, Robin Smith from the Systemic Fiscal Reform Group, uh, Cambridge-based economics think tank. 
Um, I think there's a bit of a crisis with the term capitalism here. I think it's really monopoly power we are talking about, so monopolism, uh, but that's just semantics, I suppose. But my question is, I'd like to ask the panel about what they think about the difference between earned and unearned incomes, and do they think unearned incomes are immoral, and if they do, should we abolish them? Now, let me just remind you of what the biggest unearned incomes are, pretty much in the, in the world, but the same applies in this country. Uh, the institution of private property and land, and the uh, sovereign right by being taken away from the people to create the people's money by private corporations, banking. The total combined amount annually is 400 billion pounds. Do we think that is immoral? Unearned incomes. Thank you. Gentleman at the back. The, uh, Peter Challen, Christian Council for Monetary Justice. The Abrahamic faiths are based not just on the golden rule, but on a double rule of love God and love your neighbour. And the love God in modern theological understanding, in some quantum theology, means that we have to take all species on earth seriously. And I feel that the discussion so far has really not taken account of the great planetary boundaries we have recently crossed. There are so many of them that we're looking at a situation we have never known before. And so to view it simply from past examples is highly dangerous. And we really have to understand the laws of nature and build an economy within those laws. Do you agree? And the last of this five. Um, my question is, mate, uh, uh, John Crotus. Um, do you believe, uh, or can capitalism only draw its morals from religion, or will the human need to benefit oneself always make capitalism immoral? Okay. Well, can I just can we just go perhaps from Larry down, picking up those issues that are addressed to you as concisely as you can, so we can get another round of questions in. Um, I mean, I'll take the question about um, the, the last question, Mr. John. They take me in reverse orders. Planetary boundaries. To I, to I totally agree. I mean, I, I think I said that we we're treating the planet as though we've got three of them. In fact, we've got one of them. And I think that you know, to my mind, we're not just facing a financial problem here, but potentially facing an energy problem and an environmental problem. So there's a triple crisis here that probably needs. You know, once we've dealt with the financial crisis, if we have, we need to move on to dealing with the other crises. So yes, I think I mean I totally, I totally agree that this, we are running up against resource problems and and the boundaries of of, of, our, of our space. Yes, and the hope I think at the moment is that technological progress will deal with that, will increase uh, productivity so much that we can actually extract more from uh, the limited amount of resources. I think that's quite a challenging assumption. Um, the question about um, Monopoly control of, uh, of, of allowing the banks to create their own money. I mean, this is a, a huge argument which which we didn't really get into in the in the, in the book. But I think it's a. I mean, there, there is there is an argument. I think that the banks, um, the, the, the control of money should be in the, under the control of the government, and that banks should be prevented from you know, using their power of fractional uh, reserve banking. Uh, it's a whole different issue. But I mean, it's something that we can we can we can we can get into. I mean, I think, I think the other question was about do did we ignore the social side and just look at look at cap look at look at the problems of capitalism but not the problems of society i didn't really um 
and really accept that actually that, that that's, that's not what we were saying I don't think either John or I that we were really talking about the, um, you know, the, the social the social problems that capitalism has caused I mean that that, that was that was the, that's the base that, that, that we I, I don't really maybe you'd like to explain expand your question I don't really um, understand what, what your critique of our, our criticism was So it's I just come there, Larry, because yeah. I, th I thought the basic proposition of the book actually was one that the current system, the current architecture, is unsustainable, and two, it creates all sorts of collateral social damage in terms of well, let's call it under the general category of well-being. And the task at hand is to resolve these two uh, contemporary challenges of our time, um, and then you can locate them in historic. Uh, analysis in terms of historic turning points and epochs of capitalist evolution or progress and what are the tensions within it and what is the nature of the epoch that maybe we've just come through or we're at that sort of um, space when the old is possibly dying the yet has been to be constituted and it's the interregnum to quote I think that's Gramsci it sounds familiar but you know that's the point I think so it's not an either or thing about the economics or the social sphere I think both are actually quite adequately dealt with and seen as parallel um, issues for the same sort of overarching project. That's why it's an issue of synthesis, because for two lot the economics is, is dominated by the mathematician rather than the, 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 the human, or the humanities, and that's explicitly stated front and centre in terms of the objectives of the book, you know, and that's why it's an issue of trying to return to what we aspire to be as humans, actually, which is the, the, the guy at the top. Um, do we have an acquisitive side? Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, a, uh, I'm not a neuroscientist, so um, I'm not really equipped to do with the last one. But there are issues about contemporary debates within neurosciences about what it is the human brain to be. And can you nurture a more compassionate side to the human uh, brain through a, uh, a more generous social sphere itself? You know, there are different physiological capacities that society has a role in trying to nurture and condition. Um, and finally, on the, the point there, I, I agree with Larry about that, having a broader definition of um, planetary issues as well in terms of sustainability. It's not just economic sustainability. Chandra, and then we'll come back to the audience. Okay, well, there were three questions uh, addressed to me. One was uh, from the gentleman in the front about um, if, if capitalism was so brutal, what, what was morality? Paraphrasing mm -hmm. your question slightly. It's, a bit, it's, it's too big a question, obviously, to answer fully here, but let me make at least a couple of points. One is that um, exchange is not the whole of morality. So I don't want to say anything to suggest that. And certainly um, Rowan Williams makes this point, I think, very well in, uh, in the book. It's only a small part of, uh, of, of morality. Um, <coughs> also, I think there are two questions here with respect to capitalism. One is the, the morality of the, the social structure, if you like, or the economic structure, and then the morality of people within it. Um, and, uh, and I think those two things have to be addressed separately and I mean I just can't give you the the answer you know in about 30 seconds here that you would need um, on the issue of the differences between earned and un unearned uh, income um, I'm I guess I'm not so persuaded by the um, um, the significance of the of the distinction perhaps I, I would need to hear a little bit more about how that distinction was going to be drawn certainly um, 
with respect to private property, you know, one would have to get into a whole argument about you know, the, um, uh, the purpose of such an institution in the first place, um, and then into the question of how one um, comes to acquire property in, 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 uh, in the external world. And again, these are very large questions. On the issue of money, though, I think I'm a bit more sympathetic, because if you ask the question you know, about, as a question about why it is that the um, power to, um, to create money has, uh, has been monopolized, I think that's a very good point, and uh, uh, I think it's a very bad thing. But that's a that's a that's a point but, where the left and right often do agree. Yeah, I mean, Hayek yeah, had a very very strong mm -hmm. critique. Um, but you know, it, that's a broad philosophical point. I'm not sure that if I go and have a word to Mervyn King about this anytime soon, he would be very interested. So um, yeah, you're right about that. Um, and uh, on the issue of um, you know um, a philosophy to take into account the you know the planetary condition and building an economy consistent with the, war, the laws of nature. The thing that worries me about this um, question is that I think it presupposes something that we haven't got, which is the ability to design the planet, let alone the economy. Um, and so if we're asking these questions and thinking about reform in that way, um, I think you know, it, it smacks of a kind of uh, hubris that that I find you know, very troubling. It's not to say that there aren't serious problems to be addressed, but uh, we've never designed the economic architecture of a whole country, let alone of the globe, let alone the economic and ecological architecture of the entire world. So I think we have to think in much smaller terms. That isn't to say we can't consider big questions, but um, I'm not going to offer um, any kind of solution here. I, defy anyone to come up with something sensible. That's not an invitation now, okay. Uh, Robert Wade. <coughs> My turn. Thank you. <coughs> Robert Wade, um, LSE. Um, do you think that it makes sense to say that Scandinavian countries, uh, the type of capitalism in Scandinavia is more moral than the type of capitalism in Britain. For example, the recent UNICEF study of child well-being in 21 advanced capitalist countries ranked Scandinavian countries at the top and ranked the United States almost at the bottom and it ranked Britain at the very bottom out of 21 countries. Would you therefore be prepared to say that Scandinavian countries are more, have a more moral type of capitalism than Britain and the United States? Good question. <laughs> yes, <clears throat> gentleman there with his hand up. Yes, Brian from, I'm a, a grad student here at the, at the LSC. This is for Esther Elliott. I was going to ask, um, you made it quite quite clear that you see this as a problem of two uh, of um, not enough state. I wanted to ask how you would respond to the uh, the Austrian argument that a big cause of this was um, state-run central banks that make art artificially low in in interest rates, thus allowing uh, cash to be lent where no real cash actually is. Uh, thus making a very un, 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 unstable system. At the back, yes. Um, hi. Ooh, that's loud. 
Uh, I, like, I was thinking about the, the issue of the different types of capitalism, um, and I think that whichever system you are talking about, it's grounded to some extent in what is orthodox in economic thinking. Um, and it struck me going through LSE that you can learn about financial mathematics for three years, but you would never know that John Smith, also, oh, sorry, Adam Smith, also wrote about moral philosophy. And so, do you think, perhaps to either of the professors, um, that it is a problem with the way that economics is taught, and should all the economics graduates be forced to do community service and learn about moral philosophy? <laughs> okay. That's a very good question. That is the nuts of it. I'm going to direct my question to Larry uh, early. Can you speak up a bit, even with the mic? I'm going to direct my... Uh, all right. Okay, good, I can hear you now. Okay, I'm going to direct my question to Larry. He uh, said that regulation, a lack of regulation is what caused our current crisis. Our, uh, can't remember the term, I'm sorry. But, uh, we have more regulations today than we ever have in uh, history. Uh, like, if you took a, uh, piles of books and, and stacked them up, you would, you would have much more than you ever had in, in fine print <laughs> than you ever had before. Uh, how could that be? Like, how could a lack of regulation be the cause with that being the case? Okay. Thank you. And then finally, a question at the front in this round. Thank you. And uh, that's following on from that question. My name's Tarek York. I'm an investigator with the Office of Fair Trading. Um, <coughs> I've also worked in various other government departments, uh, including the FSA, where FSA regulations, if stacked up, would be eight feet tall. Um, perhaps the question should be not so much that we don't have regulation, but we don't have the right type of regulation. Uh, should we move towards the state regulating only to make capitalism work well, and that is to protect capitalism, or should we go further and to make sure that we protect ourselves from capitalism? How far should we go? And uh, finally, if I may abuse my position, I'd like to ask, um, as it were, both sides a question. I mean, it seemed to me that what was missing from Larry and, and John's remarks was any sense that underneath the crisis there is also going on a changing balance of power in the world, the drift of economic power to the east. And with this pluralization of power, and the emergence of multipolarity, we see a pluralization of political discourses, different conceptions of the nature of a political regime and what the political subject means. This means, in turn, that there is no, in Rawls's sense, overlapping consensus in the international domain any longer. Not only is the multilateral order of 1945 under pressure, but the discourses that underpinned it have become relativized, and you see that in the playing out of disagreement and the use of language and so on in Doha, Copenhagen, discussions of nuclear proliferation and so on and so forth. So I think that makes the challenge of how one reframes capitalism so much more fundamental and much more difficult. It's about whose morality, which morality, on what basis in a much more multipolar world. It makes the problem even harder in a way. And uh, so it's not capitalism and morality, but capitalism and whose morality, and which morality, under what conditions. And to Shundran, I'd really say, I mean, your account of capitalism is intriguing and compelling, but is it really an account of what we have? You said nothing about the concentration of capital, the centralization of capital, 
oligarchic and monopoly tendencies? Are these just dysfunctions of your system or are they endemic? And you said very little about how different sectors of capitalism can become dominant over others. So we have seen the rise of financial capital and its dominance in certain countries over other sectors of the productive economy. And then this closes off politics, it closes off choices. When you have power and concentrated power in certain sectors, this is then a certain kind of capitalism which delimits and restricts the range of political choices open to polities and to politicians. And that's why I think after the great crash, as it were, we've seen so little fundamental reform. And I just wonder how you'd respond to that. So, may I give you both two minutes each to sum up? Uh, okay, well, I'll, ju I'll, I'll, just, I'll just run through the crowd. I mean, I'll start, I'll start with yours, actually. I think it's a very interesting question. I mean, I did raise the question of um, a lack of a, of a global polity. I mean, I think that one of what's what seems to be dangerous about this from a sort of international relations point of view and why there, there seems to be some parallels with the period 1914 onwards is that now as then we are seeing a big shift in the international balance of power. If you look at back to 1914 you saw some parts of the world obviously in secular decline and other parts of the world becoming real world players. So Austro-Hungarian Empire, Ottoman Empire, Britain, France to an extent were on the wane and you saw the rise of new big emerging powers, Japan, Russia, America. And you can see the same thing happening now. There are countries in the world which look to be in secular decline and others which are growing very rapidly. The global balance of power is changing. That fractured uh, state of the world makes things potentially much, much more dangerous, I think. So I think that's a very, very, uh, very valid point. Uh, Robert's point about um, uh, is the Scandinavian system more moral? Well, it certainly seems to work better. I mean, that's the, I mean, that's what I would say. I mean, the Scandinavian system, you know, it does have quite a lot of, um, uh, you know, it's a system that has very high levels of taxation, very high levels of public spending. It does seem to have re relatively good out social and economic outcomes compared to compared to the US and the UK. Quite strong, high levels of growth, high levels of well-being. So, is that more moral? Well, I'd say it probably is. Yes, myself. Um, State-run state central banks. They had a big part in the. They, they had a big part in the in the crisis. That's for sure. I mean, they certainly cannot be absolved of responsibility. But I think they actually bought into the bought into the free market paradigm. I mean, you, the idea that Greenspan was some sort of uh, Marxist revolutionary running the Fed seems to me to be uh, pushing it a bit. I mean, he really did believe in the whole uh, markets, markets work uh, and, and, the, and the more market the better so I mean I, I think it's, it's a general problem of philo economic philosophy uh, should economics be better taught? Absolutely, I thought that was, a, that was a really good question, I think you know, one thing I didn't add in my comparison between uh, the Catholic Church circa 1500 and today was that the, the equivalent of medieval Latin is today differential calculus. It's a way of actually uh, making things more obscure and keeping the broad populace away from the subject and just leaving it to a, to a small priesthood. And uh, so a period in the paddy fields or the equivalent thereof would probably be quite good for uh, large numbers of economics uh, staff, in my view. Um, was the problem caused by... Uh, a lack of regulation. Well, that seems to me to be a bit of a no-brainer, really. That um, here, London was actively marketed as a as a, as a light-touch, low-regulatory uh, offshore centre where you could do pretty much anything you liked, uh, uh, because that that was what they what that London was going to be a financial centre. It was pretty much anything goes. And I think that the question: Have we got the wrong? Did we have? Did we have? We probably had 
it's arguable we had too much regulation of small firms. I mean, what the FSA seemed to me to do was concentrate very heavily on on micro reg regulation to stop bad hats from ripping off consumers, but it sort of took his eye off the, off the 60, 600 pound gorilla in the room, which was the lack of regulation of, of, of the banks and what, the, what they were up to. Um, so, um, you know, do we need to protect ourselves from capitalism? Yes, we do, definitely. I think the, um, <clears throat> the point Larry made about positing whether this is a crisis of overregulation is partly linked to the um, question of the uh, the isolated nature of economics as a discipline, actually, that you get to the logical conclusion that this is a crisis of overregulation because of the purity, the abstractions involved in the actual modelling and uh, conception of economics within the academy. And you can, you can chart that over a, a long arc of 130 years, and I think we reach its logical conclusions where we see this crisis of the last few years as a crisis of overregulation. And sitting where I do, where I deal with, um, on a day-to-day -day level, this sort of where in East London with the lowest cost housing market in Greater London with um, patterns of demographic change un unprecedented, you've almost got globalisation ripping through a microclimate and to see the economic and social consequences of that, I don't see that empirically as a crisis of our communities being over-regulated and protected either. But I do see the logic from how you can get to that position because of the purity and the abstraction involved in the, uh, the emptying out of uh, economics from a satisfactory birth in philosophy and sociology and the society more generally in the humanities, which is precisely what this book's about. Not from a left-wing perspective, I repeat, but from a... And there's a very interesting debate going on on the right as there is on the left around this notion of a good society, encapsulated in, in um, David Cameron's notion of a, what do they call it? Um, big, society. big society. And Philip Blond, the, uh, the uh, contributor in this book, there are parallel debates. There are debates around what is behavioural economics or compassionate economics on the right, which actually seek to fundamentally question some of the building blocks of the neoclassicists. And I think that is really interesting, because it's not a left-wing assault on capitalism. It's an assault. It's an attempt to render economics intelligible in terms of the world we inhabit as citizens, as uh, participants in the world, as public policy makers, as representatives, and actually as citizens with a view to helping uh, ameliorate the worst elements that this system creates. So that's what I think the task at hand is. That's why I think it is an obligation. It gets back to certain moral questions about, um, I think, actually, if you go through the empirical data in terms of the social indicators of well-being in the Nordic Scandinavian world, you can argue that uh, the community is better catered for, as well as having more resilient economic institutions as well, that have buttressed themselves against the sort of, the velocity of change, the, the extraordinary things that are ripping through the deregulated Anglo-Saxon model over the last couple of years. So I do think you can make judgments out about them as well as politicians and public policy makers, because you have to have preferences, you have to have a view of the world in order to seek to participate in those debates. Finally. Um, on the um, question of Scandinavian models of capitalism, um, my problem with this issue is that not all systems work in the same places. I don't think it makes sense to say this model works better in, you know, in a northern country with one language and uh, <coughs> eight million people. We can transfer it to a very different place with 60 million or another different place with, you know, 1.3 billion. Um, I spent most of this summer in Singapore and a bit of it in Finland, both countries of about five million people. 
Um, in, in Finland, the national pastimes seem to me to be you know, going out to nature, nature, collecting mushrooms, and, uh, and communing with the environment. In Singapore, the national shopping uh, system seems to be shopping. That's the, uh, you, know, um, you know, you can't transplant Singaporean um, capitalism into Finland, but you know, both seem to work uh, pretty well. Neither of them may be useful for the United States or for Britain. Um, is there a problem with the way that economics is taught? I don't want to be critical of my uh, economics uh, colleagues. I, I will say that I, I share the, the wish that we, we had more economic history and more history of economic thought. But um, you know, it seems to me that there's actually a lot more interesting work going on in, in economics than people have, uh, have acknowledged. And if you want to, uh, to see this in an, in an informal way, go and get yourself a copy of the first edition of Freakonomics, um, which is a, um, you know, um, um, a layman's account of some of the things that economists are doing. And I, th I think they're not quite as, uh, as bad as people are making out. Should the state regulate to make capitalism better or um, regulate to protect us from capitalism? Well, as someone has already pointed out, there's always been regulation. Capitalism and regulation go hand in hand. Um, so that, I think the real issue is whether it should protect us from capitalism. And one of the points I made in my presentation was that, well, there are always people asking to be protected from capitalism, especially capitalists. Um, who exactly are we going to protect from whom? Are we going to protect the French farmer from uh, the Kenyans? Um, I mean, we need to be more specific, and then I think we can start talking. On David's question, uh, there are many things that I didn't cover, including, you know, the fact of the concentration of uh, capital, the um, monopoly power, the rise of uh, financial capital. I think these are all very important issues, and I think that there is actually urgent um, um, reform needed. I don't have the tools to um, describe um, the, 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 the current uh, situation. I'll just say I'm a great fan of the work of uh, Kevin Dowd, whose recent book um, even I can uh, follow. I think it's called Alchemists of uh, Finance. I can't remember the exact title. But it's a very detailed look at the way in which you know, um, current financial capitalism has emerged. And he's a free market uh, um, economist in a way, but he's extremely critical of uh, financial regulation and the way it's, it's developed uh, and extremely critical of that particular sector. So I think there are important issues to be looked at here, but I don't have the expertise to go into the name or depth. I'm afraid this brings us to the end of this session. I'm sorry. We have rules here sometimes for good purposes because rules are underpin the basis of social collaboration and possibilities. <laughs> Staff have to go home and uh, some of you have to go off to enjoy the good life such that it is. So it remains for me to thank our panel.